following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Here's why we're doing this particular series. Um, this book, unlike any other book that you're going to read, is going to tell you what the order of the church is to look like. So when I was a young pastor starting out at 19, my mentor in the faith, his name was Nick Harris, and he was one of the dearest, he's been one of the dearest men in my life, one of the best encouragers uh, through the years. And Nick told me as a young preacher, spend your time in First, Second, First, Second Timothy and Titus. These books became like personal books to me. And these books explain to us what it means, what the church is to be about. And so it's important for us to study these things. So here's what we're going to learn over the next few weeks and next few months. We're going to study and marvel once again as we do every week at the work of Jesus. We're just going to step back again and see how his work applies in the church and what, how that impacts our teaching and what we do. We're going to look at leaders in the church, why God has given them to us and how they should handle the people that they lead, as well as how the people they lead should respond to them. And in that study, we're going to look at gender roles in the church. Could there be no better thing for us to study right now than gender roles in the church? I, I am convinced that if the church would kind of get our act together about gender roles, we might be able to help the, the world understand what gender roles look like. So we're going to talk about gender roles and what God says about gender roles in the church. And then we're also going to talk about money and possessions and how generosity is a remedy for discontentment. So it should be a lot of fun. So this morning we're going to start with the first 11 verses. Now just to forewarn you, um, this was planned to be two sermons. Because of our preaching schedule, we need to make this into one sermon. But also to forewarn you, John Calvin, one of my historical heroes, preached these 11 verses in five sermons. So we're going to make it into one sermon today. So what we're going to do today is we're going to hook ourselves up to a fire hydrant and we're just going to let it rip, right? And here's what we're going to learn today. Here's the big idea. God has given his church his gospel. And he has commanded his church to teach his gospel. And when the church teaches his gospel correctly, it will produce love and unity in his church. I want to say that again. God has given his church his gospel. And he has commanded his church to teach his gospel. And when the church teaches his gospel correctly, it will produce love and unity in his church. To learn this, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So let's stand together. We're going to read God's word together. The up-down calisthenics are because you need it. And because God's word is true and we want to stand in respect and honor of God. This is the reading of God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Father, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. 
The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things of which about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding that this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the, with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Father, the church, again, needs to hear from you of what our message is and what it is that you want us to teach. We need this, Lord, because we we need to have faith in believing that your message of your gospel is essential and it is sufficient. So I pray this morning that you would elevate our eyes to your command that you would stir us and help us to submit to you and do as you've asked us to do in these verses. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So let's look at the first point there in your outline, which is a brief introduction of the book. You're going to see very clearly in verse 1 that the author is Paul, who was an apostle of Jesus, and he's writing to his dear son in the faith, Timothy. Now, Timothy is one of my favorite Bible characters. Uh, A couple reasons for it. One is... As a young pastor, I studied the life of Timothy, and Timothy was probably in his mid-30s when Paul wrote this book. Paul picked him up on one of his missionary journeys, and he was an extraordinary young man. He was raised by a godly Christian mom, and he was deeply influenced by a godly Christian grandma, a lady who taught this young man the scriptures from a young age, and Paul found him and talked to him. And brought him on his missionary journeys. Timothy became the right-hand man for Paul. In other places in Paul's writings, he said things about Timothy that are amazing. He said that Timothy served Paul like a father served a son. He said that of all the men in the world, there are not many like Timothy who would give their life for the gospel. And you can see how Paul writes about Timothy in verse 2 of this chapter when he says, Timothy is his true child in the faith. I mean, imagine, imagine, the greatest influential Christian thinker of the time writes these words about you. (laughs) Timothy, my true child in the faith. And at the time of this letter, Timothy was pastoring in the historic church in Ephesus. Now tomorrow, in my musings or my blog post, I'm going to give you a list of the men who served as pastors in Ephesus. It is a list of heroes of the faith, men that you would be amazed at when you would read their stories. And this is where Timothy is serving. And Paul knew Timothy very well. He knew his strengths, he knew his weaknesses, and he knew the challenges that Timothy was facing. See, while Timothy was remarkably gifted, Timothy was young. He was inexperienced. And at times, he seemed to struggle like most of us with fear and anxiety. He could get a bit discouraged. He was a bit melancholy. 
His stomach, according to the Apostle Paul, gave him fits. And Paul would tell him later to drink a little wine for your stomach, which we would all agree with here, wouldn't we? He might be a bit of a worrier, struggling with anxiety and fear. But Paul wanted Timothy encouraged. He wanted wanted to remind Timothy of what mattered most. He wants Timothy to be locked in squarely on Jesus Christ. Not his opponents, not, not the issues that he's facing, not the challenging place that he's serving. He wants him locked in on Jesus, and he wants him to know exactly what he is to teach, what he's to do, how he's to organize the church. <clears throat> Timothy had a particular difficult assignment in Ephesus. Ephesus was a remarkably challenging town. It's a town where Paul planted a church, and it was a tough assignment. It was not a wealthy city, but it was a distinguished city. At one time, it was known to be the most splendid city in Asia Minor. Now, to give you an understanding of what's in this city, on the backdrop of the city was a, was a temple of Artemis. doesn't seem like a big deal, but it was one and one-half football fields in length. In front of the, the temple, they had 127 pillars that stood 67 feet tall, towering over the city. Ephesus was a party town with lots of philosophy, lots of culture, and lots of teachers of every kind. And the church in Ephesus was in chaos. People in different places in life, the poor, the rich, widows, employers, employees, were fighting over social status. There were people vying for leadership positions so that they could be recognized as somebody in the church rather than serving and caring for one another. They were confused over gender roles and they had false ideas about one another and false ideas about God. Sounds an awful lot like church that we might know of today, right? And yet this is where young, inexperienced, anxious Timothy was on assignment by God to pastor this church through this challenging time. This is why Paul wrote to his dear son in the faith. Now at the outset of this letter, I, I want us to notice something in Paul's greeting that I just don't think we can miss. <laughs> I want us to notice that to this letter to a pastor about the mission of the church about the message of the church, about the structure of the church, about the power that God has given to the church, I want you to notice that Paul says something in verses 1 and 2 about the foundation of the church. We just cannot miss these words. Again, imagine your young Timothy. I mean, imagine your young Timothy. Now, if you haven't led a church, you may not think you could imagine this, but imagine you're leading a business. Imagine you're leading a family. Imagine you're leading some organization. Imagine you're trying to help your kids and you're struggling, wondering how all this is going to work out. Things are topsy-turvy. They're as fickle as humans are. Wondering, is this church going to last? Worried that the church might fail. And you get a letter. You get a letter. You get a letter from the Apostle Paul. Your spiritual dad. The most influential Christian thinker and leader at the time. And Paul begins his letter with these words. Giving his address, Paul, an apostle, and then he uses this funny phrase, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Yes, Paul's talking about his apostleship, but he's leaning in saying something about this letter he's about to write. Paul's words to a pastor and to 
all pastors. Paul's words to the church in Ephesus and to all churches for all times, listen, is by the command of God. And our only hope, Jesus Christ. Verse 2, he continues, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, Timothy and all pastors everywhere for all time. Another word, first church of Ephesus and all churches for all time is founded upon the grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. See, these words in the opening verses should just stir us to the core about the foundation of the church. See, the church is not a social justice center. The church is not the YMCA. The church is not a community center. It is not a country club. It is not a place to go just hang out and enjoy your friendships. And the church, furthermore, is not the authority. Nor does the church make up her own message. No, 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 no. The church is given to us. The church is given to us by the command of God And it's founded upon the grace, mercy, and peace of God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Do do you see what Paul is laying out at the basis of this letter? The founder and the authority of the church is the unchanging God. What remarkable news. The foundation of the church is the unchanging grace of God found in Christ Jesus our Lord. These things never change. Paul's in a sense saying, this is objective truth, Timothy. Now think how important this is because our, our feelings about church and everything in this life <clears throat> changes pretty easily, doesn't it? For some of us, our, our emotions and feelings about church change from week to week, day to day, and quite honestly, from Sunday to Sunday, depending on how we feel when we get up in the morning, right? Should I go? Should I not go? Should I be around the And we have this debate in our minds all the time, but here is something that should just absolutely stir us. The foundation of the church is because of the command of God. The foundation of the church is the grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And these things never change. They never change. The reason the church exists does not move and it does not shift. This unchanging, objective truth, listen, it helps us. It helps us. When things in the church get messy, because friends, they will. They will. They're going to get messy. You've chosen to attend here. Right? They're going to get weird. You're here. I'm here. It's going to help us when things in the church are, are less than desirable. See, we can begin to step back from the fog and we again see these words. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we realize the church is given to us. The order of the church, the command of leaders for the church, the message of the church is God's command and it's God's design, although it's imperfect right here on earth. Now see, this should just raise raise our understanding of the church's importance and the church's priority in our own lives. When we understand that God has authoritatively established the church by his unchanging objective truth. See, 
But this is also important because when you read these words, it shows you God's design for the church. The church is to be a place of grace, mercy, and peace in a world with conflict, division, and war. When you walk in the door of a church that you love, here's what should happen. (sighs) I'm home. When you're struggling with sin, you should be able to walk in and say, I need help, and you get it. When you're hurting, you should have people that you can walk in the door of a church who have compassion. Far different from the outside world. Now just just marvel at these words for a moment with me that that Paul. And this 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 strikes me as a as a pastor. The words Paul gave to a young pastor and his church in Ephesus in AD 60 are still our authoritative guide to a youngish pastor with gray hair and his church in 2022. Everybody see that that is astounding. Don't don't miss this when we get into this book. By the command of God, founded on the grace, mercy and peace of God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That you can see what that would be one sermon, okay? Let's go to the second sermon. Okay? Verses 3 through 7, you're going to notice this. Cuz Paul doesn't leave us there with just this is the church. It's Timothy, these are the words that are commanded by God. They're, they're, from the, they're founded in the grace, mercy, and peace of God. But Paul then tells Timothy something about how to recognize and refute false doctrine. See, there seems to be some doubt in Timothy's mind in the beginning of this book if he's to stay, if he needs to stay at Ephesus. You can imagine he's probably doubting. It's a hard go. It's a hard church. Hard people. And yet Paul makes it clear that Timothy is to stay put. Stay at this difficult post and charge certain people not to teach a different doctrine. And what's intriguing is, Paul seems to assume that Timothy knew exactly who these dudes were. Charge certain ones. And Timothy, you know exactly who they were. Now by way of history, by way of biblical history, we know something about this church in Ephesus. We know that these men, more than likely, were founding elders in the church who begin to teach a different doctrine. Now we know that because in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul for the first time was leaving Ephesus after he planted the church. He raised up elders among that church and he warned them, there will be a day coming when wolves will rise up from among you and they will try to lead astray the people of God. And about five years after Acts 20, Paul is writing these words to Timothy. In other words, what we see from that biblical window is more than likely the wolf pack that has raised its ugly head are founding leaders in the church who are now teaching a false doctrine. Now let's do the math on that for a moment. That'd be similar in our church. I have, I've had two elders that have been with me from the beginning. Bill Hurd, Mike Keller. That'd be similar to those two elders rising up at some point in our church and beginning to teach a different doctrine than what you hear every week. Now, those of you that know those men, who've been around those men, can understand how challenging that would be for our church. It'd be heart-wrenching. The stress load would be enormous. I would not have anything else on my mind, but how am I going to deal 
with these men, one of them who's like my own Apostle Paul, the other one is like the Barnabas in the Bible, the son of encouragement. How am I going to deal with these guys who are teaching a different doctrine? And we could feel the just, ugh, that's what Timothy was dealing with. And Paul says, charge those men not to teach a different doctrine. But what Paul doesn't just do with Timothy, he doesn't just say, stop it. He tells him exactly how to recognize it. How do you recognize what they're teaching? Now, this is really helpful for us in our culture today, because let's be honest about the day and age that we live in. So much falls underneath the guise of Christianity. I mean, listen, um, there's this thing that uh, some of you may not know about, but it's called a bookstore. And you walk into the bookstore and there's actually books lining the wall. And the reason you don't know that is because you go to Amazon and you type in a book title and it pops up and you click it and it sends it to you the next day. So many of us used to drive our cars to a bookstore. We'd walk in and we'd go to this book section and he'd say Christianity. So I'd go to Barnes and Nobles, walk to Christianity and I'd go look at all the titles. And for me, who's reading my Bible, I look at the titles and I don't recognize those titles in my Bible. But yet it's underneath the title and topic of Christianity. It's so challenging to know what is false because we live in a day and age when so much is pushed and peddled claiming to be Christ and it's difficult to spot. So it's good for Paul to help us spot false doctrine. But it's also good because, listen, let's, let's be honest, in the, in the age of tolerance that we live in, and we all know that it's only tolerant if you agree with it, In the age of tolerance that we live in, it's kind of on the outs to call out false doctrine. Instead, let's just do this. Let's agree to disagree. That's the, on, on very important issues. Because that's the pathway to unity in the church. And we have bought into this false idea that doctrine divides. Yet, here's Paul, by the command of God, telling Timothy to do what? I'm telling you to charge certain men to stop teaching a different doctrine. Meaning, it is right for pastors and for leaders and for the church to call out false doctrine. And in the wisdom of God, which we should be very grateful for this, God didn't just say call it out. God said, by the way, let me give you some signs that point to what it looks like. And in our text before us, we have two signs that show us what false teaching looks like. You can see in verses 3 and 4... That false doctrine high centers itself on controversies and myths. See, this is in contrast to the objective truth that is founded on the command of God based on the grace, mercy, and peace of God from Christ Jesus. It's in contrast to the objective truth in God's word. False teachers spend their time on things that cannot be proven. They love endless debates. Paul says that these guys have devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which is his way of saying that they want to debate things that are uncertain, and they want to argue things like heritage and lineage and family lines, and they want to do it on and on and on and on. And I just want to be honest with you. When you're in the room with somebody like this, you can never get a word in edgewise. I've had to tell people literally, here's the deal. My meeting with you will go two hours, 120 minutes. It will stop at 120 minutes. So I'm going to give you a chance to talk. Go. They will talk for 115 minutes. And then I finally get my chance to give my input. On and on, because more information will get you to change. 
On and on. It's mysterious, it's relative, it can't be proven, and it's contentious. And listen, just a warning for us, a warning. In, in the world you're living in right now, and without being too hardcore here on some things, you had better be on guard for modern day conspiracy theories coming at you from every angle. One of the concerns I have about the last two years is that Christians have just believed what happens and seen on Facebook is objective truth. What I read from the dark web, from the deep, deep recesses underneath the White House is proven to be true. And my response is, really? Rabbit holes that can never be proven. Things that don't even line up with the objective truth of God's word. And my question to us as Christians, how do we have that kind of time? There's so much to be done in the gospel work and caring for people that we better be digging into God's word, much like we dig into these rabbit holes. But further, in our culture, in the Christian world, we need to be very careful with fringe searches of truth outside of the boundaries of God's word. Outside of historical orthodoxy and historical Christian thinking. Listen, if you are in a meeting or you have somebody write you a letter, or you read it online, that somebody says something like this. God has shown me something that's brand new. And there's been nobody in Christian history that's ever thought of this idea. And I'm going to bring it to you as a revelatory word from God. Here's what you do with that. Delete it. Or if you're in the room, head for the exit aisles rapidly. Find the trap door. Get out. Why? Because so much of our thinking as American Christians is very individualistic, personal theology, and we don't appreciate the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And God, by His Word, has given us guidelines and guardrails that we need to operate with. We've got to be very careful. False doctrine centers itself on controversies and myths rather than objective truth. What can be proven? But notice something else Paul does in this text. He doesn't just show us what it centers on a little bit. He shows us the fruit of it. He says it's center, it gives rise to speculation. And we could say the ultimate end is condemnation. Notice verse 4. That false doctrine gives rise to speculation rather, he says, rather than the stewardship or meaning the good order from God that is by faith. And he wrote in verse 6 that these people have wandered away into vain discussion. See, what Paul's getting at here is where false doctrine leads is to people just being suspicious all the time. Just speculating things that nobody... And they give you these deep thoughts. You go, wow, that's really intriguing. I don't think I've ever seen it that way. And you're sucked right in. And then what begins to happen is you're led away and wandering toward vain discussions that have no end. Now that's in contrast to verse 5. Look at verse 5. Paul says, but Timothy, the goal, the aim, what the church, what pastors should be teaching, what they're, what they're targeting, what they're hoping for, is that true, sound doctrine produces something. It produces love from a pure heart. A good conscience and a sincere faith. See, we, we could put it in an interesting way in these verses and talk about the fruit. Paul would say to us, hey, Christian brothers and sisters in 21st century America, hear very clearly, doctrine doesn't divide. False doctrine divides. 
True doctrine unifies. See, true sound doctrine centers on the grace, mercy, and peace given to us by the authority of God, and it brings us in order with God and in order with one another. True doctrine produces sincere faith, love from a pure heart and a good conscience. False doctrine creates speculation, suspicion, and will ultimately bring condemnation to those who adhere to it. False teaching produces guilt-driven obedience, but true sound teaching produces love-motivated obedience. And what's challenging about false doctrine, Paul says, is it sounds very spiritual, very religious. Notice verse 7. They want to be teachers of the law. Yet they have no understanding of what they're talking about. Even though they make confident assertions about these things. See, false teachers sound spiritual, yet they are ignorant fools. As my friend Bill Hurd likes to say, some people just have too high of an opinion of their own opinion. Or as my other friend Mike Keller likes to say is, though, David, have you, have you ever noticed, those that seem to know the least seem to know it the loudest. <laughs> see, when you step back and look at verses 3 through 7, you see something very clear. Doctrine produces fruit. See, you've heard me say before, gospel doctrine produces gospel culture. False doctrine produces a false spirituality. See, what you're going to see in this text is Paul is arguing for something. Authoritative, historical, sound doctrine which centers on the authority of God and the, and the grace, mercy, and peace given to us from God and Jesus Christ, our Savior, will produce love for God and love for others that is not guilt-motivated. It's motivated out of the power of God. The aim or the goal of sound doctrine is that people would believe with all their hearts and love God with all their hearts. And they would love others from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And that, what Paul is saying is, that's what the church is to teach. That's why we want to leave you every week with a sighting of the gospel of Christ. Because only in the gospel of Christ will Christ motivate and care for his people. The The unique thing about God's word is he says to shepherds like me, hey, you're not the great shepherd. There's a greater shepherd and his name is Jesus. And Jesus has said, teach sound doctrine to my people, give them sheep food and feed them. And let me take care of the rest. The church is to teach what is sound. The aim of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Contrasted with false doctrine, which creates speculation, suspicion, division, and ultimately condemnation. See, false teachers are arrogant. If you've ever dealt with them, you know what I'm talking about. Teaching things they know nothing about, yet confidently making assertions about things they think they know about. False doctrine gives rise to endless debates and creates division within the church. So you can see the difference. So when I tell you, you can see that doctrine, doctrine can be seen, if it's true or false, by the fruit it is producing. Now, Paul doesn't just leave us with, here's the fruit, here's some things that they do. He actually specifically goes into what they teach about the law. Now, notice this in verses 8 through 11, which is our last point, which is about using the law lawfully. 
Now this set, this section is coming directly off of Paul's assertion that false teachers attempted to teach the law, but they knew nothing about it. They made confident assertions about the law. And by law, what Paul's getting at is the law of God given to Moses. We could summarize it in the Ten Commandments, just to make it easy for us to get the moral law of God. And these false teachers and this false doctrine uses the law of God unlawfully, meaning they they don't use the law appropriately. They don't teach it right. And you'll notice what Paul says in verse 8. He says that the law is good if it's used lawfully. Now, Now, that's a big statement. Because here's what we do in our theology, in American Christianity. It's this. There's this little breaking point in our Bibles. When we get to Matthew, it's the New Testament. That's everything we got to believe. But the rest is behind Matthew, the Old Testament. We throw it out because it's law. So we say to ourselves, we throw out law. We don't need it. We need grace. Because that's what we think to ourselves about how the Bible's divided. That's not how the Bible's divided. Rather, there is a law of God that is doing something, speaking about something, and it's to be used lawfully. What Paul is saying is, these false teachers were using the law unlawfully. So we have to ask, how do you do that? How do you use the word of the, the law unlawfully? Well, there's two main ways. One is to, to use the law, to misuse the law, is by not using it at all. You can see this in the, in the text, verses 9 and 10. Paul makes a list of all these sins. Everybody see that in the text? He did this to show that the law is given to us to reveal to us what sin is. The law is given because of sin. False doctrine loves to assume that God's law no matter no longer applies to people. It says things like this. All, thing, all sins are allowed. You don't need to repent. It, and it's okay with God. You don't need to turn to Christ over these things. You can do whatever you want. If you're a Christian or a follower of God, just follow your heart. God accepts you, loves you, and you can do anything you want to do. We could say that a misuse of the law is to encourage lawlessness. But there's another misuse of the law that Paul is particularly targeting. It's using the law too much. And you can see what Paul would talk about in Romans 3 and Galatians 2 when he says that we're not made right by before God through works of the law. What he means by this is false doctrine teaches that we can be made right with God through our good works, our great acts of service, or just simply obeying God. And it slips in very easily for the Christian. One man years ago called it the Jesus plus syndrome. We believe in Jesus. Then we start thinking, if I have Jesus plus my spiritual disciplines, I will be right with God. If I have Jesus plus social justice, then I will be made right with God. And we begin to add to the gospel what God has not added to the gospel. But it also slips in through our culture. What's fascinating is our last two years, this has come in like a flood. And I've seen Christian after Christian judging one another on the basis of what we do or don't do. It comes in through things, and we, in our, our, our culture calls it virtue signaling. By projecting symbols of righteousness, rather than pointing us to the only one who can make us virtuous or righteous. <laughs> so, in a sense, do this and be caring. Do this to show that you love other people rather than what's going on internally in the heart and dealing with the issues and matters of the heart. See, we we could say that a misuse of the law is to encourage legalism. 
which is an attempt to be right with God through our obedience or our good works. And that's what Paul is addressing. Paul says false doctrine misuses the law. And when it does that, it creates speculation and it creates condemnation and it creates suspicion. So we have to ask, well, well then how do we use the law rightly? What's the right way to use the law? Well, the good thing for us is in the history of Christianity, we have a man who told us that there are three uses of the law that we can find in the Bible. And here's the first one. It showed in verse 9 when Paul lays out all these sins. The law shows us what sin is. The law is a way to stop evil. We would not know what sin is or what evil is without the law of God. You're aware of that, aren't you? You would not know that murder was truly murder unless God said, thou shalt not murder. You would not know that adultery is a sin unless God had said, thou shalt not commit adultery. To use the law lawfully, it must be used to restrain evil and to reveal sin. See, the law of God shows us the character of God. It shows us that God is holy, He's righteous, and He's perfect. And it shows it in His law. It shows us what pleases God and what doesn't please God. And it, it, it tells us what should be allowed and what shouldn't be allowed. So if you want to know why there's so much confusion in our world today... It's because of sin, and we have said to ourselves, we're going to make our own law. And rather than listening to God's law to reveal what sin is and what righteousness is, we have decided to make our own law. It's no different than what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. The second use of the law is to point us to Jesus. Notice verse 11 with me when Paul puts this interesting addendum right after his discussion about the law. See, we can say all day long we don't like the law, but Paul uses the law. And look what he says in verse 11. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. See, the law must be taught in accordance with the gospel of the glory of God. What the law does is show us that we cannot please God in and of ourselves. You're aware when you read the Ten Commandments that at some point of your life you have sinned Probably in every one of them. If you've disobeyed the first one, which is you shall not have any other gods before me, you have disobeyed all of them. If you've spoken ill of your neighbor and you lied or, or, or did something, uh, you created adult, you had adultery in your mind or your heart, lusting after somebody else, you, you have sinned in all of the commandments. The law teaches us that we, we cannot obey this law perfectly. What this law does is show us that we cannot please God. It shows us our disobedience. It shows us our sin. It points us to the fact that we've all sinned. But look what Paul said in the book of Galatians, that the law is a guardian or a tutor until Christ came. See, what the law does is it shows us our imperfections and our need for a Savior to save us from our imperfections. And when Christ came, we no longer needed the law to point out the fact we need a Savior because a Savior is here. He perfectly obeyed the law for us. And the Holy Spirit then writes God's law on our hearts when we believe in Christ. Which leads us to the third use of the law, using it lawfully, is to show us how to live as Christians. See, once we believe in Christ, the law of God shows us what honors God and what glorifies God and how we can live holy like our Father is holy. Without God's law, we wouldn't have a clear understanding of what pleases Him. So now in Christ, we can obey God's law by His power because Christ has saved us. 
See, this is where we get a little goofed up as Christians. You might have, I have this question often. So can a Christian, a person claiming Christ, be a practicing homosexual? My response to that is, no Christian who's a child of God will make a practice of sinning against God. Just like I would also say, no one can be a practicing adulterer. Because the Bible says that. How do we know that? God's law says that. God's law teaches that. See, we, we cannot obey God's law without being empowered by Christ, which is exactly what the gospel does in us. Now, this is really important to us today, right now, because false doctrine is always misusing the law. It's trying to keep you entrapped, keep you enslaved. It looks spiritual, it sounds religious, but it produces suspicion. It produces disorder. It eventually produces condemnation. And friends, listen, our culture and some of our favorite ideas in the world and some of our religious leaders misuse the law and are perpetuating false doctrine everywhere. I hear it in conversations in our church with just little phrases we use. I mean, one little phrase that I think is an error, I don't necessarily think it's heresy, I think it's an error, is the phrase, we need to love ourselves first before we can love others. When people have asked me that, I always ask, what do you mean by that? Normally it's, I need to learn how to love myself better so then I can give out better love to other people. And I say, well, I think that's noble. But my question would be, is that in the Bible? Or did God, through Jesus, tell us to do something else? Like, instead of loving ourselves more, we're to deny ourselves more. Do, are we to live in a way that says, we must increase and he decreases? Or that he must increase and we must decrease? Right? See, it's just a subtle thing, but it's a phrase we use often that just subtly drops into the church. And before you know it, people go, oh, I just didn't love my neighbor because I haven't loved myself enough. You go, actually, but you're disobeying God. Disobeying God. Let's start there. And what does God's word say? See, this is the re- false doctrine is the reason misusing the law is when you come into church and you hear the word of God preached, that you walk away in your shame and your guilt. That you're not pointed back to the Savior. False doctrine and misusing the law is why people are not turned to Christ. They're turned inward. We make it about us as humans. But the church of Jesus Christ, this church, our church, and all churches throughout all time are to teach sound doctrine, which means we're to teach God's law lawfully in accordance with the gospel of the glory of God. See, the goal is that every one of you who hear, you've heard me say this before, God forbid on the last day I'm standing there as you're passing by and you've heard the gospel over and over and over again and Jesus says, God says, depart from me, I never knew you. The goal is you would believe in the gospel, that it would transform your soul, that you would love God and you would love others from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith without any guilt manipulation. That God would go to work through the power of sound doctrine. See, D.A. Carson said it best that sound doctrine and biblical preaching will make the heart sting with conviction of sin and make the heart sing in worship of the Savior who died for those sins. Sound doctrine will unify the church. See, this is why the big idea, again, needs to be repeated. God has given His church His gospel. 
God has commanded His church to teach His gospel. And the church teaches His, when it teaches His gospel correctly, it will produce love and unity in His church. Let's pray. Father, we need so much help in this because we have been inundated with erroneous teaching. And it isn't just from the Bible, it's from the culture. And it affects, it affects the way we live. And for some, Lord, in the end, it will create condemnation for them. So I pray this morning that you would take your gospel... And we use it to transform people to believe in the purity and the power of Christ Jesus coming and living and dying in their place. Father, we, we want to be a church that not only proclaims sound doctrine, but we, we, we demonstrate it. Father, help us to see the importance of what you've commanded. Help us to inundate our hearts and our minds with the gospel of Christ, of the grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us live by the command of God, as Jesus would say, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And Father, may we be a church, a people, that in our gatherings, in, in our teaching context, in our, in our Sunday mornings, that wherever the Word of God is opened, that it would be taught soundly with the foundation of the grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would teach by the command of God. Because, Lord, these are, these are your words. These are not ours. (laughs) You are the authority. We are not. And so this morning, we submit to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.